Welcome to the Kotki Ride Home for Friday, April 23rd, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. What do you call a collection of black holes? That's not the tee-up for a punchline. Scientists are legitimately trying to decide what word to use. Plus, how Maslow's hierarchy of needs was based on Blackfoot principles that he got wrong. And how the problem of McDonald's perpetually broken ice cream machines is even more supersized than you might think. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. I love plural collective terms for groups of animals. Like, sure, there's herd of cattle and a flock of birds, but what about a sleuth of bears, a parliament of owls, a cohort of zebras, an unkindness of ravens? There are so many good ones out there, and words used for a collection of alike items aren't limited to animals, and so right now, scientists are trying to decide what term we should use for multiple black holes. There are two reasons why this has come up recently. One, because of recent discoveries of dozens of black holes clustered together where it was once thought there was just one huge one. And two, because in a meeting for scientists working on the Laser Interferometer Space Antenna, or LISA, which will detect collisions between black holes, one of the scientists' daughters chimed in to ask what a collection of black holes is called. The question sparked a lot of fun and creativity both on the call and on Twitter, where the question was posed to all of LIGO's followers. Some top suggestions include a crush, a hive, a graveyard, a silence, an enigma, a speckle, a riddle, a plague, a wonder, a void, a colander, a disaster, or my favorite, a mosh pit. That last one actually got used by a team of astrophysicists in a paper they published recently. And disaster is etymologically apt, as the New York Times points out, quote, The word disaster is rooted in the Latin astro, star, and later the Italian term for ill-starred, end quote. Here's my suggestion, though. What about a muse of black holes? You know, riff on their great supermassive black hole song. Apparently, the authorities on high, who are usually charged with decreeing the official names of these things, the International Astronomical Union, say they don't actually have rules on collectives as terms, so people can come up with whatever they want here. I gotta say, there are a lot of great candidates being suggested. There's also a scream of black holes, a crush of black holes, or a coral of black holes, which would be in honor of physicist Carl Schwarzschild, but also just sounds hilarious and kind of like a nod to Hank Green's sci-fi novels. Whatever we call them, we are going to be learning a lot more about black holes over the coming years as more gravitational wave antennas are being put into action, helping us learn ever more about these enigmatic voids. You're probably familiar with Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, the theory developed by psychologist Abraham Maslow, illustrated as a pyramid that shows how basic needs like food and shelter must be met before humans can move on to psychological needs like belonging and love, and only after fulfilling those might a person reach the summit of self-actualization. Now, Maslow was always clear this wasn't a particularly scientific or set-in-stone theory, but it's nonetheless remained a popular framework across many sectors and disciplines over the years. 
But one major critique of it is that Maslow didn't exactly come up with it on his own. He based it on teachings from the Siksika Nation, or the Blackfoot Nation, whom he stayed with for a summer back in the 1930s. But he either accidentally or intentionally misunderstood it, and never really gave them credit for it. The Blackfoot model, in fact, is basically the opposite of Maslow's. Cindy Blackstock, a member of the Gitson Nation and a University of Alberta professor, has often presented on this topic. Karen Lincoln Michelle, a Ho-Chunk journalist, wrote about one of Blackstock's presentations a few years ago, quoting Michelle, First of all, the triangle is not a triangle. It's a teepee, Blackstock said. And the teepees in the Blackfoot tradition always went up and reached up to the skies, she said. Another difference noted by Blackstock is that self-actualization is at the base of the teepee, not at the top where Maslow placed it. In the Blackfoot belief, self-actualization is the foundation on which community actualization is built. The highest form that a Blackfoot can attain is called cultural perpetuity, end quote. And writing in Gather 4, Teju Ravilochen further explained some of the key differences in the inverted design. Quote, Where Maslow's hierarchy ends with self-actualization, the Blackfoot model begins here. In their view, we are each born into the world as a spark of divinity, with a great purpose embedded in us. That means that we arrive on the earth self-actualized. End quote. Next in their model comes belonging. Quote, After we're born, imbued with a divine purpose, the tribe is there to love and care for us. And then comes basic needs and safety. While in Maslow's model, we find love and belonging only after attending to our basic needs and safety, the Blackfoot model describes that our tribe or community is the means through which we are fed, housed, clothed, and protected. The tribe knows how to survive on the land and uses that knowledge and skill to care for us. Next is community actualization. Intending to our basic needs and safety, the tribe equips us to manifest our sacred purpose, designing a model of education that supports us in expressing our gifts. Community actualization describes the Blackfoot goal that each member of the tribe manifest their purpose and have their basic needs met. And finally comes cultural perpetuity. Each member of the tribe will one day be gone, so passing on their knowledge of how to achieve community actualization and harmony with the land and other peoples gives rise to an endurance of the Blackfoot way of life, or cultural perpetuity. End quote. Now, as Ravi Lochem points out, Maslow didn't just rip off the Blackfoot Nation while getting it all wrong. He'd been trying to work on his theory of development for some time before he spent a summer with the Blackfoot people. His hierarchy of needs represents influences from a number of different sources. And it's possible he never gave credit to the Blackfoot Nation because he knew that he had flipped the model upside down, knowing that the European-American-centric cultures he traversed in were opposite in their thinking and priorities. It also went against his previous research, and it's likely if he did cite them, his theories sadly would not have been taken as seriously in academic institutions. But it does raise the question— what are we losing by clinging to Maslow's hierarchy of needs and not examining other ways of thinking common to many cultures like that of the Blackfoot Nation? Quoting again from Gather 4, It's time for us to let go of narratives like Maslow's hierarchy of needs and the American dream, which leave out any mention of participating in community well-being and tell a story only of individual flourishing. This profound distortion of reality leaves us living in illusion, needing to wake up. As Daniel Suello says in The Man Who Quit Money, there's not a creature or even a particle in the universe that's self-sufficient. We're all dependent on everybody else. 
Who sewed the clothes you're wearing right now? How many materials from how many different parts of the world are inside the device you're reading this post on? How many hands touched the food you ate for lunch on its way to your bowl? How many living beings participated in the creation of your home? Even if you purchased these goods with money you earned, you're not self-sufficient, but relying on a community to care for you. You're living, perhaps, more in alignment with the Blackfoot model than with Maslow's. End quote. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a McDonald's in possession of an ice cream machine must claim that it's broken. I mean, it's just laughable at this point, right? The McDonald's ice cream machines are never working. Last fall, Rashik Zahid even built a website called McBroken that shows a map of McDonald's franchises across the U.S. and lets you know whether or not their machine is currently working. The website has shown that at any given moment in the United States, 5 to 16% of McDonald's have broken ice cream machines. Here's the thing. The machines being broken, it's a feature, not a bug. And I don't mean that the feature is annoyed employees turning it off to claim that it's broken so they don't have to make McFlurries. Oh no, it goes way deeper than that. First, the myth of employees lying about the machine being broken is, well, probably the myth. While the Taylor C602 digital ice cream machine used at most McDonald's restaurants is pretty incredible in some ways, they have extra hoppers and barrels allowing employees to pull milkshakes and soft serve simultaneously, and they have a heating, pasteurizing, refreezing, cleaning process that eliminates the need to take the machine apart to be cleaned every night like other ice cream machines, but they're also super temperamental. One anonymous employee describes them to Wired as being like an Italian sports car. If one thing goes wrong, the whole machine collapses. And despite that efficient nightly cleaning process, they still have to be taken apart and sanitized every two weeks. Quoting Wired, some pieces have to be carefully lubricated. The machine's parts include no fewer than two dozen rubber and plastic O-rings of different sizes. Leave a single one out, and the pump can fail or liquid ingredients can leak out of the machine. One McDonald's franchisee's tech manager told me he's reassembled Taylor's ice cream machines more than a hundred times and had them work on the first try, at most, ten of those times. End quote. And even that nightly cleaning process that's supposed to be mostly automated and more efficient can fail. Quote, leave the machine with a bit too much or too little ingredient mixture in its hoppers, accidentally turn it off or unplug it at the wrong moment, or fall victim to a myriad other trivial errors or acts of God, and the four-hour pasteurization process fails and offers a generic, inscrutable error message, meaning that the machine won't work until the entire four hours of heating and freezing repeats, often in the middle of peak ice cream sales hours. The result can be hundreds of dollars in sales immediately lost, end quote. Now, theoretically, you might have that one employee who's become a whiz at fixing the machine, you know, like the one person in the office who has a magical way with the copier, except that the manufacturers at Taylor built them so they couldn't be fixed except by their own technicians. To access a menu that shows the machine's vital signs and decodes the cryptic error messages, Wired reports, requires tapping a seemingly random series of 16 buttons, the order of which an instruction to do so appears nowhere in the manual for the Taylor C602 digital ice cream machine. This cheat code of sorts was discovered by Jeremy O'Sullivan, who explained it to Wired, quote, 
The secret menu reveals a business model that goes beyond a right-to-repair issue, O'Sullivan argues. It represents, as he describes it, nothing short of a milkshake shakedown. Sell franchisees a complicated and fragile machine, prevent them from figuring out why it constantly breaks, take a cut of the distributor's profit from the repairs. It's a huge moneymaker to have a customer that's purposefully, intentionally blind and unable to make very fundamental changes to their own equipment, O'Sullivan says. And McDonald's presides over all of it, he says, insisting on loyalty to its longtime supplier. Resist the McDonald's monarchy on decisions like equipment, and the corporation can end a restaurant's lease on the literal ground beneath it, which McDonald's owns under its franchise agreement. End quote. So O'Sullivan and his partner Melissa Nelson, accountants turned froyo robot inventors and startup founders, took matters into their own hands. Over a decade ago, they built a machine called the Frobot, which basically turned the existing Taylor frozen yogurt machines used in most Froyo restaurants during the big Froyo boom into a vending machine by installing a touchscreen interface and till in a branded box around the Taylor machine. As they started installing the Frobots in various spaces, they had one barrier to their growth, the need, as set by the National Sanitation Foundation, to monitor the temperature of their yogurt, something they weren't able to do themselves because they had just built their robot around a tailor machine which wouldn't show them the temperature data. But when they called out a tailor technician to do so, they noticed he could easily access all the info they needed just by typing in that cheat code. So O'Sullivan teamed up with a hardware VC accelerator called Hacks. With their funding and the help of their engineers, O'Sullivan and the team eventually ended up creating a device called Kitch, K-Y-T-C-H, that can be installed on the Taylor ice cream machines, connected to Wi-Fi, and then display any hidden communications from the Taylor machine in plain language on a friendly interface. It keeps a log of the data and gives troubleshooting suggestions. Now, despite initial support from Taylor for the Frobot, once the tech behind it evolved into Kitsch and that started being sold to McDonald's franchise locations, Taylor and McDonald's attitudes turned frosty. Franchise owners typically pay thousands of dollars a month to Taylor distributors in service fees. With Kitsch, they pay substantially less and have the convenience of being able to ascertain the problem and fix it themselves without having to wait for a technician to come in. Clearly, it's better for the franchise owners, but not for Taylor. They launched a rival device, the Taylor Shake Sunday Connectivity, after allegedly convincing franchisees to deliver one of the kitches to them, and McDonald's sent warning emails to franchise owners saying that the kitch devices were not only a breach of Taylor's confidential information, but that the devices could cause, quote, serious human injury. The one-two punch of the new Taylor-created device and warnings from McDonald's to remove Kitsch devices lost Kitsch the bulk of their customers and essentially tanked their company. O'Sullivan and Nelson are planning to file a lawsuit against the McDonald's franchisees who may have provided Taylor with the Kitsch devices they used to build their competitor, but they're not holding out hope they can win against one of the largest companies in the world. O'Sullivan himself mostly thinks the game is over, even calling the Wired profile the company's obituary. But he and his team are committed to fighting for justice in the right-to-repair battle and uncovering the many possible suspicious ripples in McDonald's close ties with Taylor, which O'Sullivan and several anonymous franchisees allude to but don't name. 
As O'Sullivan described it to Wired, it's, quote, a valiant effort to a very non-critical but ubiquitous piece of the world's infrastructure, an effort that had been defeated not by the flaws of that machine, but by the people controlling it, some of whom would rather it remain broken. There's the ice cream machine, O'Sullivan says darkly, and then there's the machine behind the machine, end quote. Well, that's all I got for you this week. Is anyone else craving a McFlurry as badly as I am right now? Alas, my lactose intolerance. But anyways, this show, as always, was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird. I hope you all have a fantastic weekend, and I will talk to you again on Monday.